Good evening, guys. Welcome to Salt. Y'all excited to be here? Yeah. That 90s vacation dance party, that reminds me of my youth, too. There's going to be some uh, Saved by the Bell action going on there. Y'all going to get some Zach Morris, some Screech on. It's going to be pretty awesome. I'm really excited to see that and just boogie with you guys when that happens. And I'm a terrible dancer, so don't be next to me. I might hit you on accident. I'm one of those, like, kung fu fighter ones. So it's not a real good deal. Uh, my name's Ernie. Oh, I'm one of the, I'm the, what am I again? Oh yeah, I'm the church planning candidate here at Candeo, and I'm really excited to be with you guys. And I got a story for y'all about a guy named Lawn Chair Larry. Anybody ever heard of Lawn Chair Larry? No, of course you haven't. I'm gonna tell you how he got his name, okay? So there's this guy, Larry, who one day wakes up and he goes into his like local Army Navy surplus store and he buys about 75 weather balloons. I don't know if you know what a weather balloon is. It's not the little one you give to kids. It's humongous, okay? He buys 75 of these things. He fills them up with helium. He ties them to his lawn chair. You get where I'm going with this right now? All right, he ties them to his lawn chair, ties his lawn chair to his truck, and has a bunch of his friends out there watching him, and he's gonna have one of his friends, he's gonna climb in that chair and have one of his friends pull, just untie it, let him float up. Now, two things I, I really realized about his friends. One, either they're not his friends, or two, his friends are a herd of morons, all right? And I'm like, because to let him do that, they either are dumb and they're just like, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's keep doing it. It's going to work out real well. Or they're like, or they're just like, they don't care about him at all. And just like, let's just see what happens to Larry right here. Either way, like I'm feeling for Larry at this moment. So he climbs in this chair and you may be asking like, why would anyone ever do this? And one of his friends was interviewed afterwards and said, well, friends anyways, said he was hoping to, to observe the neighborhood from a slightly different angle and gain a new perspective on life, right? And all he brought with him is he brought a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, a six pack of beer and a BB gun, all right? <laughs> That's what he brought with him. He brought those things. And so after he launches out, two and a half hours, two and a half hours passed and LAX reports an unidentified flying object in the sky at 16,000 feet above the airport. And, and guess who the unidentified flying object is? It's Larry, okay? Larry's up there three miles up, 100, over 100 miles away from where he started. And that's where he has, and the pilot that spotted him as he's flying a 737 looks at him and goes, I, it says this, well, I see what looks like a perfectly still man in a, is, is that a lawn chair? And he's holding a rifle. If you heard that, I'm surprised Larry ain't dead, like counterterrorism to take him out at that moment. But, but that's not what happened. The, the, the SWAT team, amazingly in this incredible feat, somehow lassoed Larry as he was unconscious in this chair and brought him down to, be, to safety. And you may be thinking the same thing. I was thinking like, hey, what's the deal with the BB gun? Like, why was he carrying a BB gun? And Larry thought this was his idea, that he's gonna climb in this chair and he's, he's gonna untie and he's gonna float up gently. And when he got to the, the height that he wanted to be, he was gonna shoot the balloons out so he would hover there, have a sandwich and drink his beer and just kind of reflect on life. And then when he was ready to go down, shoot one or two of them and they would just drift down real easily. Well, that's not what happened, all right? Very clearly. What happened to Larry is that when they let him out, when they untied him, he shot out of it like a cannon just into space. And, and, and as he shot up, he did what me and you and every single one of us would have done. He panicked. Like he immediately panicked. And what he did is he did what he always did when he stressed out. He started just pounding beers. Like he just started pounding beers. And by the time he hit 2,000 feet, because I mean, he's probably thinking like, I'm going to die, you know? 
Might as well drink these beers. I don't know. But by the time he hits 2,000 feet, he passes out. And amazingly, he didn't die. He didn't fall to the chair. And when they brought him down, what he got was a $4,000 ticket for obstructing airport traffic. <laughs> and then he got interviewed. And the interviewer, I was like one of the most ridiculous interviews I've ever heard of. Like they asked him three questions. They were like, hey, Larry, were, were you scared? And he was like, yeah. You know, but he didn't just say, yeah, he said a bunch of expletives after that. Like, we're not going to say because we're in church, but he said those. And then, and, he, and then it was like, great question. Cool. And then, then it's like, hey, Larry, would you do it again? He's like, no, I would not do it again. It's like, good, Larry, you're learning. All right. You're not that, you're not, you're maybe not the captain of the morons anymore. And then Larry, why did you do it? That was the third question. And here's the crazy thing. He said this, I just got tired of always sitting around. He's like, I just got tired of always sitting around, hanging out. I felt like my life was missionless and purposefulless, and I, wasn't, I didn't know what it should have been about. And it's just this kind of idea. And I think we have a whole lot more in common with, with Lawn Chair Larry than we like to admit, because I think many of us sitting in this room, been going to church for years and years and years and years, or for the last year, and there's sometimes you're like, why am I sitting in this chair? Am I just sitting here so that I can just be a better person than I was last year? And there's something inside of you that says you're meant to be a part of something bigger. That, that God has this mission, this thing that he wants you to do, but many of you, you don't really know what it is or you don't know how to do it or you don't feel like you're really the right person to do it, that God has a mission for you, but you don't know how to carry it out so you don't really do anything. You know, And we kind of view this idea of mission because that's what we're talking about tonight because I believe that God has a mission for each and every single one of us that he's calling us now and later in parts of our life to do things. And I believe that many of us, though, when we think about mission, we kind of think about it like extra credit. Like no one does extra credit. You only do extra credit is when you're worried about failing in a class or you need to bump your grade up a point or two. And us as believers, when we think about Jesus, when we think about when we know that we've been saved by grace through faith and it's not of works, that seems like something that, mission seems like something that super Christians do or people that overwork or do more. They want really, it's like, it's like extra credit, something else that somebody else should do. And, and it really reflects in our culture. Did you know that this, that 90% of Christians, this uh, 90% of evangelical Christians, 90% of evangelical Christians will never share the gospel with someone outside their family. That's sad. It shouldn't be that way. And what we tend to do is we tend to look when we skip past the mission that God has for our lives, we begin to look for missions that are not from God. And we make our lives about things that aren't really that important and worthy of our time. And we find ourselves, I believe, we find ourselves afloat like Larry, wondering what's next what really matters. See, if that's you in this room, if you resonate with that at all, that you're kind of sitting there going, what's this all about? What's this deep urge I feel inside to be a part of something big and important? What is God calling of me? What does he, what does he desire of me? You're in the right place, because tonight we're gonna talk about why you should go and how you should go. We're gonna be looking at 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 through 21, you can flip there. And as we're looking there, you're gonna see that, that mission isn't just extra credit for people who need, to get, need a bump in their grades or for someone who is 
just an overachiever Christian, but a mission is something that it's who we are because we've been transformed by the love of God. And he's made us to be ambassadors of Christ to a lost and dying world. Man, I love the sound of these pages flipping right now, by the way. It's a beautiful sound. And as we dig in this, kind of three things I want you to know is we're gonna see why we go, how we go, and what with we go. But let's pray before we get started. Jesus, thank you so much for the opportunity to look at your word. And, and God, I just ask that tonight, you would give us a, a vision for what you're calling us to, and we would be obedient to it, not out of obligation, not because it's something we ought to do, and not because it's like taking our vitamins or working out or these things we should do and our life would be better if we did them, but it's because at the core of who we are, um, we are people who've been transformed by your love and transformed by your love for us and the things that you've done for us have changed us and forever changed us and they send us out, God, to bring other people in, to be a part of what you're doing because we wanna be with you. So Jesus, I just ask in this time that if there's people in this room that are just like, this message isn't for me, I'm never sharing the gospel, I'm never gonna do that, that's for someone else, I'm not ready for that, that you, your Holy Spirit would convict them, that you would teach them, that you would show them that that is, that's not obedience to you, number one, and number two, God, that there's so much more joy waiting for them when they do step into obedience. There's so much more life waiting for them when they do step into your mission, when they do step into what you're calling them to do. And so we love you, Jesus, and we praise you. Amen. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 starts like this. For the love of Christ compels us, since we have reached this conclusion. If one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for those who, who died for them and was raised. From now on then... We do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. Even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we no longer know him in this way. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see, the new has come. This is what you need to see in these couple of verses is that we go, the reason why we go is because we have been transformed by love. We have been transformed by love. That's what these verses are about. This is what Paul is talking to the Corinthian church. He's talking about why is he doing these things? Why does he go out and do these things? Why does he share the gospel? Why, why is he planting churches all around? He goes, this is why we go because God is transforming. In fact, he has this really interesting word that he starts out with. He says, for the love of God compels us. He's talking about those that are with them. And I love how the ESV says it because it says, for the love of Christ controls us. And that word, synko, uh, it means, that's the word for control. It means to exercise continual and complete control over something or someone. So what Paul is saying here, he said, with the love of God is not a nice thing in my life. It's not a good thing in my life. It's not something I'm happy that I have. It's something that dictates the pace and the direction of my life. When I think about the decisions that I make, when I think about the different ventures I would pursue, the one controlling factor of me, the one overwhelming thing that, that controls me is the love of God and the amount of which I experience it. And I mean, it, when you have been, just think about this so much, when you have been so utterly changed, so utterly transformed by what God has done in your life, is that not the natural response? That you would see someone that loves you so much isn't that love meant to be so transformational? Shouldn't you set your life around that? That's exactly what happened to me in junior high. I, be, I was a believer from a young age. I was a, a person living in disobedience to God, abuser of grace. And I remember going to church camp with my youth group and I'm, it's the last night and I got my 
camp girlfriend that I'm gonna make out with right after the session, and I'm sitting there right next to her, you know, and it's like the different girlfriend of the week. I'm not bragging, it's just like, it's just how horrible I was. And I'm just sitting there right, right there, and the guy's talking, he's talking about how Jesus died on the cross for us, he's describing that scene. I've heard that story over and over again, I knew it, I believed it, I believed it was true, but I'm, as I'm listening to it, it's like God just snapped his fingers, like, hey, look at me, I want you to listen to what this man has to say. And he just starts talking about what Jesus is going through at the moment, about how he died on the cross and how the death of the cross was agonizing. It was difficult. It took hours. And that people were mocking him. And in complete agony, they were gambling over his clothes. And at that moment, he was, the speaker was not only talking about what God was physically, Jesus was physically going through at that moment, but what was happening spiritual, spiritually at that moment. That at that time, the sins of the world were being laid upon Jesus and God was pouring out his wrath on sin, punishing sin in the person of Jesus. I kept thinking about what, what kind of weight would that feel like to have all the sins? Here's Jesus, perfect, blameless, never sinned, has all of, the, of sin placed upon him. What kind of weight would that bring upon a person? Think about the thing that you've done that you don't want anybody to know and how it weighs on you when you remember it. I mean, just imagine that was there. Even the most heinous things you can imagine, like the Holocaust or crimes against children, just stuff that you look at people like, when people do that, how do they live with themselves? And that was laid on the perfect, sinless Son of God, Jesus, at that moment, carrying it. He's holding the sins, he's dying for the sins of the people even around him that are mocking him at that moment. I just thought about the weight of that, and I just was like, I don't know what to do with that. That sounds so heavy. And as he's doing that and they're mocking him and they're gambling over his clothes, Jesus does something remarkable. He says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? That would never be my response. My response would be like, Father, they're hurting me. Father, all I've done is I've loved them and cared for them and and healed them. And this is what they're doing to me. They're obviously deplorables. They're obviously unredeemable. I I would just smoke them. I'd be off the cross. I'd be done. And here's the thing. Jesus had choices at that moment. He could have gotten off the cross, but he didn't. It wasn't as if he was unable And he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And I was like, what kind of love is that? No one loves me like that. See, God's love is so utterly different than us, we have to give it a different word. Like in the Greek, we have words for like eros, like love that like a boy and a girl have like, I love you, I love you so much. Oh my gosh, I love you. No, you hang up. No, you hang up. That's eros love in Greek right there. Uh, Phileo is like, yo, we're bros. What's up, buddy? Yeah, cool. All right. But then we had to give God his own word for love because it was so utterly different. It's agape. It's so utterly different. And at that moment, when I saw that, I just started breaking down. I was like, nobody loves me like that. If you love me like that, I'll trust my life to you. I just start snotting up and crying. My camp girlfriend's looking like, this ain't working. And I'm like grabbing my face, like, get out of face. Sorry, I'm looking sick. You know, I was like, a mess. And I remember the next day getting on the bus and looking at my youth pastor, like, hey, I need you to teach me how to share this. Because if God loves me that way, I got friends that need to know that. 
Because what was happening at that moment is that God's love was controlling me. It was transforming me. It was changing me. It was even changing the way that I see people. Look at verse 16. That's exactly what it talks about, right? I'm controlled by love. So verse 16, from now on then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective, even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we no longer know him in this way. I love how he says, from now on then. He's like, hey, from all the things, because of what God has done, because he has saved us, because of the gospel, from that point on, now I don't see people the same way that I saw them before. All right? He says, in fact, there was a time, Paul's saying, there was a time where I saw Jesus just in a worldly perspective. I saw him, as, and you saw him the same way before you became a Christian, is you saw him as just a religious person or a historical figure or some person you talked to when you, before you go to bed and ate breakfast or something like that with your family. All right? You saw him just in a particularly worldly view, but because God's life, God's love has transformed us and changed us because of the gospel, we now see him differently and we also see other people differently, right? Before I knew Jesus, the way I would deal with my neighbor, like just neighbor Joe, I'm not gonna name a real neighbor because it'd be, yeah, whatever. Uh, like neighbor Joe is because the first I look at him, I would just think a couple of things. Please don't bother me, all right? Uh, please don't be loud. And if we're friends, that's cool. Like when I looked at my neighbor Joe, when I viewed people, I viewed him, how do you work for me? How does your relationship work for me? How does this fit what I want to accomplish? I looked at him just purely as just a metaphysical way. But when Christ came into my life, then all of a sudden the way I looked at Joe was differently because I realized this, listen to me here, is that he is an eternal being with an eternal destiny. That God created him to be in relationship with him. And I wanted him to have that because somebody did it for me, because love transformed me. It made me see things differently. Why did it make me see things differently? Because when love controls me, I am different on the inside. When the gospel interacts with your life, it changes you. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and see that the new has come. See, when you became a believer, he didn't just change the outside of you, but he changed you and made you brand new. Not you 2.0, but you a new creation, a new person. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27 talks about like this. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you the heart of flesh. And I will put on my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What God is saying to his people is he's saying that if you'll follow me, if you'll trust me, I'll remove your heart of stone. I'll remove your sinful spirit. And I'll give you a heart and a spirit that longs after me. I will change you from the inside out. I will transform you. Notice, guys, this is the first thing you've got to know about mission. Is it starts with who you are, not what you do. Just like the gospel. You're a transformed person that is part of transforming other people. And your identity, it starts with your identity. We get it backwards. We're always thinking about what we do defines who we are, but really what scripture shows us over and over again is who we are, a def, a def, a def, a, <laughs> who we belong to identifies who we are. See, when you become a believer, the amazing thing about this is you don't have to manufacture trans, transformation in, your, in yourself. You don't have to try to fake it till you make it. God changes you from the inside out. His love transforms you, and it's his love. And that's what he means in verse 18. He says, everything is from God, 
who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation that is in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the, committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So where does mission stem from? Our identity, we were transformed by God's love. Secondly, how do we go? We go as ambassadors that have a message of reconciliation. When we have been so radically transformed, radically changed, when God has done such a radical work on the inside of us, when we now see people differently than we did before, we can't just sit there and not do anything. It just bubbles out of us. Why? Because love controls us. It controls us. And it's not your love. It's God's love, right? Now, here's the crazy thing about you, Christian. This is what you need to see yourself as, an ambassador that is a messenger of reconciliation. Being a messenger of reconciliation means that you don't save anyone. You don't save a single person. God does the saving. God does it. What does it say? Look at it again. It says, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. God was already done the work. He's entrusted us to be the messengers of the work, and we're to do it as ambassadors. We're meant to share it as an ambassador. What is an ambassador? An ambassador is someone who lives in a foreign land and represents a foreign kingdom. They don't speak under their own authority, but they speak on behalf of the one who sent them, right? Isn't that the perfect picture of what we are as Christians? Isn't that who we are? I mean, the epistle Peter, he says, hey, you are aliens living in a foreign land. Iowa is not your home, okay? I know what I'm learning about people from Iowa is you never leave it, all right? There's a world outside of this place where there's no corn, all right? It's all here. And we also see that what? That it's God that speaks through us. He says God makes his appeal through us. So let me, let's be honest real quick. That feels really freeing. Why? Because it means that my qualification for being, uh, being an ambassador, for being a, a, a messenger of, of reconciliation has nothing to do with my ability. It has nothing to do with my knowledge. It has everything to do with my ability to lean on Jesus. It has everything to do with my dependence on Jesus. And these verses tell us we, we don't even have to speak our own words, that God speaks through us. And also tells us that God is calling us to be faithful and not fruitful. He's calling you to be faithful and not fruitful. Because see, I know you're like, well, John 15 says we're meant to bear fruit. I'm like, yeah, but you need to understand where does the fruit come from? It comes from God. Like when, remember when Jesus is talking to disciples in Matthew 9, he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You notice he didn't tell them to produce the yield. He told them to harvest it. God isn't telling you to grow spirituality in your friends. He's telling you to share the message about how they can have relationship with him. So me, you as an ambassador, we're passing on a message. We're not producing it. I'm sharing the gospel. But the thing is, the thing that makes it go is not your capacity. It's not how charismatic you are. It's not your ability to articulate things. It's the Holy Spirit working in somebody's life. 
So what I need to do, what you need to do as ambassadors is we need to draw near to God. And we need to go. We need to go as ambassadors, and and as ambassadors, we should share with our actions and our words. Because that's what an ambassador does. He embodies the nation that he represents, and he also speaks on behalf of that nation, right? To do one without the other, I don't know where that quote is. It's a weird quote, I forget it. I think it's misquoted, but it's like, always share the gospel, but sometimes use words or something like that. That's the silliest thing I've ever heard. It is literally the silliest thing I've ever heard in my life. How can you share the gospel without speaking it? If you're gonna share the gospel, you gotta share it with your actions and with your mouth. Because if you share it with your actions and not your mouth, guess what you do? You create people or worshipers of you and they're further from the gospel than when they started. Because then they start going, oh man, Sally is so great. Sally is so awesome. She's such a good person. If I could just be as good as Sally, that'd be great. And you've created people that think that you're amazing and you've done great stuff, but you haven't spoken up to talk about what God has done in your life to change your life or share the gospel with them. And now what they think is that they have to do good things in order to be a good religious Christian person. I know why we don't, we're like, I don't wanna bother them. I want my actions to speak for it. But no, you gotta speak. And if you speak and you don't have actions, then you're a hypocrite. You're pretending to be transformed when you're not. No one's going to follow that. It takes both. See, our lives, we should live out the truth of the gospel, not as perfect people, but as broken people in need of mercy and grace. And, it, and, it, and go, hey, when I fail, I fail. I messed up. I didn't do it right. God's grace is good. But also people who speak the truth to other people. It has to happen. It has to come out. I mean, after all, look at verse 20. What is he saying that Paul says he did, that they do? He says, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You don't plead with your actions, you plead with your mouth. It's not an either or, it's a both and. As ambassadors, we should go on purpose where your leader sends you, right? That's what an ambassador does. He doesn't pick where he lives. The king says, hey, you're gonna live here, you're gonna go here, you're gonna do this, and I'm sending you here for a purpose. And he commissions out the ambassador to go somewhere, right? The ambassador doesn't tell the king where he's going, the king tells the ambassador where he's going, all right? And God has given, so God gives, so the king gives an ambassador a commission to go somewhere for a purpose, and God has given us a commission to go somewhere for a purpose. In fact, there's this kind of verse that we look at that we call the Great Commission, and it says this, and it says this, it says uh, in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, it says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe everything, everything I've commanded you, and remember, I'm with you always to the end of the ages. What's the first thing Jesus tells them to do after he says, hey, all authority's been given to me? He says, go. He says, go. And it's not like this, like, as you go kind of thing. That doesn't make sense. Like, why would Jesus be looking at his disciples saying, hey, as you go to the nations? Like, uh, 2,000 years ago, Jews didn't just like, hey, I'm gonna go to India. It's like, no, you're a fisherman. You're not going anywhere. You're gonna live your life at this lake and die at this lake. 2,000 years ago, you're not getting on a plane, you're not just traveling for fun. It doesn't even make as you go. What would send you there except for mission? Nothing. And, if you, it, and like even within it, it, it grammatically it doesn't even make sense. You know what the word go means in Greek? It means go. It means go. 
It means go. It means take off. It means leave. It means go. It go now. What Jesus is telling us in the Great Commission is he's commissioning us and he's saying to intentionally go towards something that he's calling us to go to and that it shouldn't be circumstance, that we shouldn't passively sit back and go, hey, I hope somebody shows up and talks to me about this today. You have no idea how weird it is that we have the gospel, but only, but 90% of us never share with anybody else. To have something so transformational and amazing happen in our life, we don't tell anybody about it. It's like, like, could you imagine having the cure for cancer and be like, I'm not gonna tell anybody, you're gonna think I'm weird. How odd would that be? How weird would that be? God is telling us to go. Guys, he's telling you as his ambassadors to go to the campus that you're on right now. See, the problem with mission, we always think about it in the future. When I graduate, what am I gonna do? Where am I gonna go? I wanna talk to you about that. I'm a church planner, so I wanna talk to you about that someday, okay? But right now, God has sent you to a place on purpose, to that dorm, to that apartment complex, that team, that sorority, that fraternity, that, that study group, that class, you are there on purpose. It's not an accident that you're there. In fact, a, a mentor of mine used to tell me this. He said, his name was Donald Tapp, great man. He said, Ernie, you know how you can tell if God's working in somebody? And I'm like, how Donald, he says, he puts a Christian next to him. Because God's method is people and spreading of his gospel. Isn't that true? Don't we see it in Acts 1.8? He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He didn't say he was gonna send out angels. He didn't say he was gonna send out rocks. He didn't say he was gonna send out paper tracks. He said he was gonna send people, disciples, witnesses, ambassadors, people to bring a message of reconciliation. Now, this is what we get to bring. It's amazing. All right, look at verse 21. It's the last verse. He said, he made, and he made the one, this is Jesus, who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We go with the message of the gospel. And that message isn't, hey, you need to get your stuff together. That message isn't, here's five things to make you a better person. That message is this that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That God so loved the world, right here, verse 21, that he came here, the one that did not know sin, and he took the penalty of your sin and my sin so that we could have the righteousness of Christ. That you can be in right relationship by trusting in what Jesus did. It's an amazing message. It's a, it's a transformational message. I believe that many of you wouldn't be in this room unless that was true. So here's some questions to think about as we close. Is the love of God controlling you right now or is something else? I don't want you to go do something because you feel like you're supposed to do it. I want you to do it because God is so loving and so amazing to you that you can't help but do it. So is the love of God controlling you? And who have you been sent to as an ambassador? And are you being faithful to share that message, both with your mouth and with your actions? That's the second question, that's a couple of questions in it. Let me pray, Jesus, thank you so much for these men and women. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to make much of you.
Uh, Lord, I ask that as we just contemplate these words and we make much of you in worship, uh, Lord, that you would bring a place where we're going, we want to change that statistic. We don't want that, we don't want to be part of that 90% that never shares, that never invites people into the joy that we experience in relationship with you, that, ne- that we are transformed, but we don't want to hold it to ourselves. We want to let it out. We want to see you work in our lives and move in other people's lives. So God, I just ask for the men and women right now that you would just start placing names on their heart and mind and they would begin to pray for those people and they begin to share with those people. And Lord, that we would hear stories next week of people who have come to know faith because one of these men and women were brave even though their knees were shaking. They spoke the truth about who you are and they saw you bring about fruitfulness in their life and they were faithful to obey. God, thank you for what we experience and what you've done for us. We love you, Jesus, and we praise you. Amen.